Hello and welcome to Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Orla Director of Government Affairs. And joining me today from the Orla team is Lori Little, Director of Communications. Hey, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Lori, considering everything that's been going on. It's been a while since we've done one of these, but I'm excited to, uh, I guess, not be back in the studio, but at least just be on the microphone again and uh, producing one of these. Yeah, we did take a little bit of a hiatus, but it is good to be back uh, doing podcasts again. And um, we've both been so busy with several things, different directions, but uh, what's, what's coming up on your plate? Well, I haven't been baking bread. I wish I had been. But yes, as you mentioned, it, it's been a little busy uh, and it will continue to be busy because coming up November 9th and 10th, we have Orla Live, our virtual event this year, our hospitality conference. Um, our members can access content that's focused on helping their hospitality business find new ways forward. Uh, they can get registered today and they get access to all the sessions for $99 going to feel different than just another Zoom call. Uh, the speakers are going to be broadcast from the Orla Live video production studio. We're going to have high quality video and audio, and anyone who chooses to view it live is going to have an opportunity to participate in conversations via chat, or uh, they can watch the archived sessions when the time is right for them and their organization, either you know right after or at some point in the future, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, well, that's the key. I mean, you know, I think a lot of us are pretty zoomed out. Um, you know, I, I, there's a there's a Zoom call on my calendar every single day, but uh, this is going to be a little different. We're we're trying to really make it feel different as well. I mean, people are going to be, um, you know, in the the video studio live, and uh, our listener or our participants are going to be able to to uh, ask questions, which is, which is really cool in the, in the chat and. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and I know you've been really involved in getting some of the sessions set up. Can you talk about maybe a few of the things that uh, people are going to be able to access and and uh, participate in? So we have two keynotes lined up and seven fireside style chats, two intelligence briefings, and eight breakouts that are uh, all around solutions and best practices from our industry allies. So a lot of topics we're covering, um, but very timely, relevant stuff on restaurant recovery and resiliency, uh, the lodging landscape, um, beyond uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, what, what are the top five things businesses can implement today? Um, and then, of course, really looking forward to election 2020 that you will be participating in and uh, giving a little uh, analysis. Yeah, that should be interesting. Um, there will be a lot to talk about and um, a, a lot of forecasting that we'll, we'll have to see is accurate. But I know that folks can see the entire agenda and they can register today if they go to OregonRLA.org slash Orla Live. Well, today we are talking about employment practices with Ann Hassenstab of Ward Insurance and Haley Morrison with Tonkin Torp. But first, we want to make sure you're getting the most out of your membership. And to help you do that, we'd like to highlight a benefit that you may or may not be aware of. Did you know members get exclusive healthcare discounts with United Healthcare? Before you know it, it's going to be time to look into health insurance for 2021, and you can't overlook Orla's partnership with United Healthcare. 
Programs include up to a 5% discount on specialty benefits for fully insured groups, in addition to all other discounts, including bundling benefits programs. You can learn more at OregonRLA.org. And if you're not a member, visit OregonRLA.org where you can join and start taking advantage of the numerous cost-saving benefits that we offer. So right now, I'm very excited to introduce our guests, Ann Hassenstab, Executive Risk and Cybersecurity Practice Leader for Ward Insurance, and Haley Morrison, a partner with Tonkin Torp, LLP. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, employment practices is one of those things I, I think that a lot of the operators realize is really important, um, but can sometimes be confusing or overwhelming um, and makes it difficult to, I guess, dive into it really. Um, it, you know, it's, it's incredibly important to how you operate your business, but it's probably not a ton of fun uh, for those who are in the hospitality industry. So we want to try to um, make it a little fun uh, today, I guess, and, and get some answers out there as well. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of issues this year. Obviously, we've got the pandemic and the wildfires and the protests in Portland. Uh, we've got new rules and regulations that are coming up. And oh, by the way, there's a presidential election happening here shortly. Um, so on top of already all that, um, there's a lot of things that labor and employment issues, I think that um, operators and employers need to be aware of. And so in your mind, Maybe we'll start with you, Haley. What are the top three laws that you think employers need to know right now when it comes to labor and employment issues? Yeah, um, there's some interesting laws coming up next year and over the next couple of years. But for today, what's happening right now in our world, I would say that employers really need to be paying attention, not just to the laws, but the guidance that's out there, because a lot of it is interim guidance that's happening on an ongoing basis, sometimes updating on a weekly, monthly, sometimes daily basis from sources like Bully. Uh, the CDC is really important when it comes to the pandemic. I mean, since April, we've had guidelines that are issued that have been changed, reformatted, challenged by different courts, you know, reissued, and then we learn more about the pandemic and now we have mask rules and self-isolation and how does all of those different things interact and work? And so I would say, for really any employer, one of the most important things you can do right now is sign up for CDC alerts, bully alerts, uh, DOL, the Department of Labor, that's federal, federal alerts, just to stay on top of some of that stuff because it is really, really difficult to keep up. And if what you're doing is relying on a call from your lawyer or your HR person, uh, there's just so much information and changing all the time that I would say that's first and foremost. Pay attention to those resources that are free, Google them, look at them. You have a situation come up, see if you can find an answer on the CDC website first with regard to, for example, pandemic stuff, um, because they have made that stuff really user friendly to the extent that they can. Um, and it's great guidance and it's free guidance. And um, with regard to laws coming up, we still have a lot of pandemic laws happening right now, interim rules and regulations related to paid time off in Oregon in particular. The big rule for 2021, or the big law, it actually went into effect this month, um, is the Workplace Fairness Act, and that relates to policies and procedures uh, surrounding sexual harassment and discrimination laws. This is the, the Me Too outgrowth 
um, and some of the legislation that has come as a result of a lot of that kind of advocacy. And with the Workplace Fairness Act, um, again, Bully has some really good free resources. They have a template policy, but employers really do need to have a written policy now regarding harassment and actually sexual assault too. And then there's uh, just some more technical stuff related to it. Statute of limitation was increased for, for claims of sexual harassment from one year to five years, which is a huge change. Employers can no longer have non-disparagement agreements um, or confidentiality or non-disclosure provisions and settlement agreements. So there's some pretty big sweeping changes in those laws. Um, and that's going to be a really important one just for any business going forward. Uh, the other big thing coming up that we still have some time is the Oregon Paid Family Leave Act, which is, I think it goes into effect in 2023, but there's there starts to be some things that we have to do to prepare even going into next year, including additional rules and guidance that will come out. But essentially that, turn, that turns the um, FMLA in Oregon's version into paid family leave uh, for 12 weeks for all employers in the state, including employers that only have one employee. So that's going to be a big one. That's great. Um, you know, I want to jump back real quick to the workplace uh, fairness doctrine because uh, that came up recently, um, some other communication that we saw. And I think it's one of those that um, maybe is creeping up on employers and, and they're not as aware of it because of everything that's happened since it passed. And, um, you know, what we've been dealing with since March, obviously, but um, obviously a critically important one for both uh, employers and employees. So, um, glad that you mentioned that as, as one of those two that people need to, to be aware of. And obviously we're coming right up on that with 2021 around the corner. Um, so. Yeah. And actually employers are already required to have those policies in place as of October 1st of this year. Yeah. So it, it's time to get them. If you need an interim policy, just until you were able to consult with HR or your lawyer, uh, Bully does have a template policy that you can use. I think that the Bully template policy is pretty good, but um, there's ways to make it more user-friendly, which I prefer to do if you're going to disseminate those kinds of policies to an employee population. But it is really important. So Band-Aid is the bully policy until you have a chance to do something else. That's great. And just to clarify, you said that went into effect October 21st this year. Uh, October of this year. Yeah, okay. just this month. Yep. Yeah. And anything that um, you can think of in terms of... Um, it laws that employers need to know about from your side? Yeah, um, we, you know, obviously the the updates are critical to, to stay on top of. So the Workplace Fairness Act, for sure, as Haley mentioned. But, um, you know, before kind of getting on this this conversation, Haley and I were kind of talking, it was already, it was already very heavy on the um, laws and litigation side as far as, you know, employers having to navigate a whole slew of other things, right? And a lot of the updates we're talking about are really based on, um, some of the old standards to so the Title VII, you know, um, Civil Rights Act, the Fair, you know, FLSA, um, FMLA, um, ADA. These are all, you know, kind of the the standards that you know, um, you know, that lead into a lot of the litigation that we see. Um, and so, making sure that you've got an organization that's on top of that moving legislation and understands that the ins and outs of each of those pieces is is critical. Um, there's a lot of interesting laws and regulations that are coming out that are leading into claims on my side, um, immigration acts, um, different like kind of genetic uh, privacy acts and things like that. So it's a wild, uh, wild <laughs> rodeo out there, but, you know, staying on top of that stuff, there are resources out there. There's a lot of great bully resources to stay out, you know, like, like Haley was saying, when these updates come out, 
definitely utilize the templates that are being available and kind of implement and then um, definitely reach out to, to any sort of attorneys and, and um, you know, your HR uh, consultation to, to make sure that you're staying on top of that. Yeah. Go ahead, David. Well, Greg, I was going to say, you mentioned earlier, we have a presidential election coming up and it's been interesting because a lot of the legislation that it's made its way through the last four years is starting to really hit in terms of independent contractor rules, labor rules. A lot of the things that the Trump presidency really changed from the previous administration are being implemented right now um, and then may or may not change over the next couple of years. So there are a couple of really big issues. Joint employment status is one of them. Independent contractor legislation, particularly if you have any operations in California, are going to be super important. Uh, but keep an eye on that stuff because a change in administration right now with all this going on can move the needle really quickly. And you mentioned uh, having to make some policy changes, Haley, obviously, when you're talking about the workplace fairness doctrine. But you know, what do you see is in terms of financial changes uh, because of these laws? What's what is the impact that it's going to have on employers financially? Um, gosh, it's a hard time to be an employer right now, especially in a business that's not booming as a result of pandemic related needs. I mean, I think wine brokers are killing it. But other than that, <laughs> people are having some trouble. Um, so I think it's it, number one, and can talk about this, but having good insurance is, I would say, really important right now because we just don't know what's going to happen. We're seeing legislation and litigation that we've never seen before. I mean, the slew of COVID-related litigation that's likely to come or OSHA-related litigation that's likely to come. Um, changes in the Workplace Fairness Act, for example, we talked about the statute of limitations being increased from one year to five years. You're going to need a longer reserve when you terminate an employee or you have an employee that makes a complaint. Um, these paid leave laws, even just under the Family First uh, Coronavirus Act, uh, which was you know, implemented in March or April, now we have these additional leave obligations for employers. So you do have to have more of a reserve for um, taking care of families, health, and even litigation. And some of that is just really uncertain. We're, we're now starting to see some of that wave of litigation that we probably could have predicted in April, but is only now coming to fruition from layoffs, from rifts, from um, you know people being sent home because of, of COVID issues. So I, I think insurance is one important piece of it. And I also just think keeping reserves where you, where you have them is gonna be important. Just an unpredictable environment. I think everybody realizes the value of having the insurance, but like you said, I mean, they're going through such a tough time right now. If it's something that they don't already have in place, you know, um, just try to think about what, what it is, you know, bottom line that they need to absolutely have. And, and I don't know what kind of insurance, um, I know that there's some like disaster insurance. Have you been writing a lot of those policies for COVID related reasons? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the biggest, you know, kind of I wouldn't say um, misunderstandings or kind of like big uh, controversies right now in the insurance world is like where was all the business interruption insurance, right? There's a big, big exclusion out there for viruses and um, kind of pandemics and things like that. So the insurance marketplace is um, scrambling at this point, trying to put together some products for future pandemics. They obviously aren't going to jump in now, but um, that's that whole that whole segment of insurance remains to be seen of how that's going to be 
playing out. Obviously, we've got work comp, um, workers' compensation insurance in play with, you know, some of the more direct health-related type stuff. But as far as employment practices, liability insurance, we're talking about like that liability of you being pulled into court, defending a claim and potentially, you know, facing settlement and damages on an employment-related wrongful act, right? Um, If you can imagine the hotbed of activity that was already happening in the past two decades with with regard to discrimination, harassment claims, Equal Pay Act, I mean, all this stuff, it was already a burning book of claims for the insurance industry. And now on top of it, you've got the COVID-related spike of, you know, layoffs, furloughs, um, that any sort of changes in your workplace, like um, status is going to kind of have its own bucket. And then you've got the discrimination, harassment, um, you've got uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, um, you've got aging workforce, things like that. So the marketplace in general um, is really challenged right now, just uh, from the insurance standpoint of just you know, you've got the old carriers that have been the domestic go-tos of handling EPL claims for years and years. I mean, two, two to three decades, having a pretty challenged book of business with a loss ratio that's seeing a ton of claims and already needing rate. And now, you know, they're needing 10 times more, right? So, and then during COVID, the beginning of the market, we were seeing um, uh, carriers just completely shut their doors to new business. So if you hadn't bought EPL insurance because you didn't think you needed it, um, it was really hard pressed to find a market that wanted to pick you up, right? And so, thankfully, that's moved a little bit. Um, people, you know, the carriers have started to, to open their doors a little bit more, and we were able to find some capacity where we couldn't uh, a few months back. But um, the pricing is a little bit higher than what people have probably seen in the years past for, for due reason, right? Um, but again, back to your your question about the financial impact, it's super imperative to have insurance because. Without it, the financial impact of just going bare bones on a claim um, with the defense costs being as high as they are and, and potential damages definitely within the easily in the six figures or above, um, that completely outweighs the premiums that we're talking about. So um, yeah, I think insurance, we'll, we'll do more plugging on the insurance piece and resources later. But um, yeah, I think that's definitely a huge uh, financial advantage to have in place. So you mentioned, obviously, we're seeing an increase in premiums. And are you also seeing that increase, though, in coverage for people that are seeking uh, either for the first time or if they're re-upping their coverage? Are they trying to get more uh, coverage at this time? Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, it's it's always a challenging time to increase the the coverage, right? When when there's a big need and and, uh, there's an increase in claims and things like that. But um, the, the good news is that there's a ton, there is a ton of market capacity globally. Um, there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of carriers that are writing EPL insurance. There's all different types of ways to put programs together. You can kind of do what's called a quota share and get multiple carriers involved uh, and participate in that way. Um, increase limits have multiple carriers sit on top of each other and kind of share risk. Um, yeah, we're definitely seeing uh, requests for increased limits, um, and and we're we're getting creative with with building that capacity out. So that's been good. Great. Well, let's um, shift gears here for a moment, and let's talk about um, I guess the concept of free speech or protected speech in the workplace. As as we talked about, there is a presidential election, and sometimes um, tempers can run high when you're talking politics in the workplace, but um, if you've got employees who want to participate in protests, how can you provide as an employer a safe working environment uh, 
but also try to protect your company's reputation while allowing an employee the ability to have their right to free speech. Is there, is there a magic formula there or <laughs> any words of wisdom? Uh, if only it was so easy that there was a bright, bright line rule on this one. Uh, this is going to be so fact dependent. But the rules for protests and free speech are a lot like they are for social media use. Um, you can't really prevent your employees from expressing their views and their opinions in their own life on their own time. Um, but you have a right to exclude it from your workplace. And it needs to be viewpoint neutral. It needs to be uh, you know, political affiliation neutral. You can't just say, if you want to talk about Trump, you're not allowed to do it here, but you know, here's a Biden sticker for your cubicle. Uh, can't do that, but uh, you can have policies that say you know, no political speech in the workplace, no handing out of materials, no solicitations. It's fine to exclude that from the workplace um, as far as what employees do on their own time. Really, the key takeaway there is that they are doing it on their own behalf and not on behalf of the company. They are not expressing views of the company. They are not speaking on behalf of the company. Um, and then just some common sense. You know, if you have an employee that engaged in violence, regardless of whether it was at a protest or otherwise, then you have some different options than just saying, you know, I don't want you to attend that rally. So there are some behavioral concepts there, but they are nuanced. And uh, whether or not it's defensible is going to depend in large part about how that actually comes into the workplace and reflects upon the workplace more so than the behavior itself. Sounds Sounds like a um, sort of a fine line there. What about on, on the person? If they wanted to come in and, uh, you know, wear a political shirt, uh, you know, during, during work hours, I mean, can that be included in what those policies outline? Yeah, and I would say to the extent that you have a, a dress policy or workplace policy before protests, um, you lean on it heavily and you say, you know, here in our policy, it says no graphic shirts, no media shirts, no slogan shirts. That's always been in place. That still is in place now, whether or not we're in a, you know, an election year. Um, if you don't have something like that, again, the, the, the expectation is that whatever you are disseminating as a company policy is viewpoint neutral. So if you have people that are coming in and they're wearing graphic t-shirts and they're politicized and it's causing workplace distractions, what we talk about is not what's on the shirt, we talk about the workplace distraction. Hi, politics is super distracting in the workplace. This is a memo to all employees. We're no longer allowing, you know, shirts that state a political affiliation. So flipping that around, Haley, you mentioned, you know, some of the, the protests that are going on. If I work for a, a company, a branded company, and we have shirts with the logo on it or something, and I wear that to that protest, I mean, are you able to write a policy as an employer to prohibit that kind of behavior? Not really. I mean, that might be a bridge too far. And shaking her head, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's like, again, it gets really nuanced. And part of it is, what are you going to do that's risk mitigation? And what are you doing to wade yourself into a problem? Um, you know, if this employee is going to a rally and they have, you know, just taking my firm's name and as an example, a talking torp shirt on and maybe engaging behaviors I don't like, part of what I need to think about as an employment lawyer or HR or the head of a company is to say, do I really want to wade into this battle? Did they do anything that is actually reflecting poorly on me, on my company, on their behavior, or are they just there with our shirt on? 
Um, and some of those considerations are practical in nature and some of them do have some legal limitations. People are allowed to go to protest. Um, they just are, you can't prevent them from doing that on their own free sure. time. Are we gonna make an issue of the fact that they had a Tonkin Torp logo shirt on when all they were doing was attending a protest? Or, you know, are they now on the five o'clock news having a gate, you know, throwing a Molotov cocktail through a window wearing a Tonkin Torp shirt? Those are, those are different conversations. Sure. Um, and a lot of it is just really risk mitigation. What, it, what is worthwhile my, you know, a worthwhile topic to raise and to make an issue and what do I need to just let go? Yeah, you know, I know this has come up, um, particularly in Portland, where employees, you know, they don't want to come into work if they know that there's going to be protests and potentially, uh, you know, uh, rioting or some other activity. Um, you know, what's the employer uh, going to do then? Gosh, that's a really, really tough question. Um I think that if there is a realistic threat that is causing safety concerns for an employee, we need to be understanding about that as businesses, you know, separate from any legal liability. But I also very often would advise clients, which lawsuit would you rather defend? Do you want to defend the lawsuit where you made them come in and work from their desk at the office when they could have done it from home and potentially got injured on the way back to their car? Or do you want to defend the, you know, or, or do you want to let this go and perhaps not have a productive work day? Um, some of that's just the balancing, uh, again, of practicalities. I think if there is a legitimate threat, you do run a legal risk of having an employee forcing them to come into the office that they don't otherwise need to. You have some, you know, like negligence claims and tort claims. You also just have angry employees that are going to find a reason to sue you, whether or not the, the actual cause of action is justified or not. Yeah. Or come in and have a less productive day anyway, because they're upset that they had to come in. Yeah, and that, I mean, it's really tough. So my office is in downtown. I actually was in trial by Zoom, of course, because that's what we do now. Um, during the, the height of the protest, um, right when George Floyd was killed, and I was, you know, looking out my window at two o'clock in the morning to protest and thinking about how I'm going to get back to my car. I didn't have anybody forcing me to stay in my office. But had I had somebody forcing me, I'd be, I would be very concerned about that kind of you know, overlording of my safety and my time. So yeah. if you can do it from home, if it's a risky environment, let them do it from home. If you really can't, then find a safer way to get them there. Maybe you maybe you hire extra security. I mean, there's a lot of other options rather than just um, being ambivalent to somebody else's safety concerns. Yeah. And did you want to jump in there as well? <laughs> You're reading my head nods and... <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I just, no, I, I agree with Haley completely. I mean, it, it, and obviously you can hear that it's not a, a black and white answer to these questions, right? Um, I, I was just kind of, uh, I guess, having a reaction to, it's from the claims that I've seen on the employment side, um, anytime you're stepping outside of what the, that individual is actually doing in their actual course of work for you and, in you know, under your roof, under your um, employment, um, if you're stepping outside of that into, you know, back to that question of if they're going to protest and, and to Haley's point, they're allowed to go. Right. Um, I, I think that's when um, you kind of need to pause and take, take um, stock of the policies and procedures that you're putting in play. And are they directly related to the actual employment of the individual under your guidance versus what they're doing in their personal life? That's, that's kind of the big distinction. Um, and one of the things that we have as resources to lean on is making that phone call to an attorney to figure out, you know, what can I, can I, 
do and what I can't do in the circumstance. What's what's the best course of action for these individual situations? Because as you can see, and here, I mean, it's it's all. I mean, there's all different you know types of scenarios that can come into play. So. All right. Well, that seems like a good point for us to take a quick break and we will be right back. Food production and preparation require tremendous resources, including farmland, clean water and air, labor and energy. Yet millions of tons of food are wasted each year. As food professionals, we have the power to eliminate significant amounts of food waste. Metro has resources that can help us get started, including free videos, toolkits, and more, including a webinar from Lean Path Executive Chef on the top five reasons for food loss and what you can do about it. Join restaurants and businesses across the region in preventing food waste. Visit foodwastestopswithme.org to learn how to get started today. Welcome back to Boiled Down. We're discussing employment practices with Ann Hassenstab and Haley Morrison. And we're going to uh, talk about the COVID-19 situation, uh, layoffs and furloughs and leave issues, because each of those are different. Um, they all kind of got lumped in together, I think. But um, when employers, are, are employers required to provide paid sick leave for an employee who might be experiencing COVID symptoms? We get that yes. question a lot. Yeah, they are. Um, that's part of the uh, the coronavirus relief package that was issued by the federal government back in April. Um, the two weeks, it's 80 hours. Uh, we call it two weeks for shorthand, but really it's 80 hours because it's based on the employee's regular work schedule um, of, of paid sick leave time off for COVID-related reasons, including um, waiting for the administration of a test if they're having symptoms. And, and I guess what's the trigger or is there a bar that... I mean, can somebody just walk in and say, I don't feel very well, or I couldn't taste my coffee this morning, and I think I have COVID. Can I get my 80 hours? Yeah, so a couple things there. The answer is yes. I mean, take them at their word. They're going to exhaust their sick time. If they're lying, then they're not going to have it later. Fine. But you don't want to take the risk that you're not believing in the credibility of an employee that is potentially has COVID symptoms. The other part of it is that it's up to 80 hours. It's not a straight 80 hours. So if the employee can't taste their coffee in the morning, they go and have a, a test, they test negative, they follow the CDC guidelines, whatever they are at the time, <laughs> as they change a lot um, and engage in the isolation that's required, you can return them to work. So maybe that's three days, maybe that's five, maybe it's two weeks, uh, but it's up to 80 hours based on need. And can an employer require a test? If somebody comes and says, I think I have symptoms? Yes, an employer can now require a test. The employer should provide it um, to the extent that they can, and, and really they just should. Um, and yes, you can. It's really interesting because the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, has changed a lot, at least in, as on a temporary basis with regard to COVID, because all these things that we weren't allowed to do, that employers weren't allowed to do for decades. Um, they now are taking temperatures of all employees when they come into the office. I remember the first time somebody asked me about that in February or March, I said that you absolutely cannot do that. And you absolutely could not do that until one day when you absolutely could and you should. Um, so those things are changing a lot, but there is more flexibility with uh, those kinds of disability laws now to be able to root out any COVID symptoms um, 
you know, until we hear otherwise from the CDC, that's that's going forward. We can ask people to take tests if they're having symptoms. We can take the temperature. We can ask about COVID symptoms, all things you couldn't do before. And once someone's exhausted that 80 hours and they come back and say, hey, I can't taste my coffee again this morning, you give them the test and they test positive. Is it just at that point, if they have any additional sick time that they could use, or is it just unpaid leave if they don't have any? Yeah, it's an 80 hour limit. So that's what you're required as an employer to pay underneath the FFCRA. Um, they can always take sick leave that's provided under the Oregon paid sick leave law or anything that you have as an employer as a policy. Um, you know, PTO can always add that and utilize those banks that they have, but otherwise it's an unpaid leave. Okay. Um, Lori, did you have a follow-up? So is all leave under the Family Medical Leave Act now paid leave? It's not. Um, <laughs> so the, the, this gets complicated and I'm going to try not to make it complicated, but you know, I have to look every time again. So here we go. Uh, under the Family Medical Leave Act and OFLA, Oregon's equivalent, they now have extended temporary rules that mirror the, the Coronavirus Relief Act when it relates to children and school closures. So there is a paid provision um, under all of those laws that, that will run concurrently for school closures and the need to stay home and take care of kids. So you can get essentially that entire time covered by some portion of pay with a combination of those laws. If it's not related to a school closure, then no, it's not paid. So take FMLA for a medical leave that's unrelated to COVID. That's, we're now not talking about the FFCRA at all. We're back to just FMLA and OFLA and that's unpaid leave. That is up until the Oregon paid family sick leave law that we covered a little bit earlier kicks in in 2023. So no, generally not paid still under the FMLA or OFLA unless it relates to one of those qualifying reasons under COVID. Thanks for clarifying that. Oh, I didn't. I clarify it so well. Do you just feel like you just? <laughs> I think Clear we said at the beginning, these are very complicated topics and, and it's hard for employers to understand it. So even, even a glimmer of understanding from you to them is going to be helpful. And then they can always seek more professional advice if they are still confused, which I always am. But Yeah, I think the, the, the helpful dividing line with the Coronavirus Relief Act is really understanding that the sickness stuff, the paid sick leave is this 80 hours. That's the two weeks up to 80 hours. The balance of the package was related to having to stay home under quarantine hours and take care of children. And so that's when you get into this extra period of time that runs concurrently with the FMLA or OFLA um, and is paid because it's relating to having to care for children that would otherwise be in school. So it's a really interesting dividing line, but that's where we are. And in Oregon, with our schools not being open for in person, I mean, that automatically kicks in or that's just it's there and you can take advantage of it if, if you need it. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple extra requirements that are not going to be hard for employees to prove for the most part, but it's the school closure. You don't have other daycare um, choices, uh, you know, like a spouse at home or a grandparent or your regular babysitter. Um, and there are certain um, certification requirements that you can require of an employee to prove that that's the case. Uh, but generally speaking, it's going to be a pretty easy burden to get that extra time underneath the FFCRA. 
Okay. And can an employee continue to claim unemployment benefits if they don't return when they're called back to work, if they were, I guess, furloughed, right? Right. Is that the right term there? Yeah. Yeah. It could be furloughed or rift or, uh, you know, people are using a variety of terms because now they're in interchangeable in our, in our former life, those two terms were not interchangeable and, and now they seem to be the laws are more neatly aligned, at least with regard to the pandemic. Um, if an employee refuses to come back to work and you have work available, then they no longer get their unemployment benefits. Um, I would actually have to look, but I think that during the period of FFCRA, they would still get the balance of unemployment benefits to the extent that they're unpaid. Um, but if there's work available and they just don't want to come back, the unemployment benefits get cut off. Okay. And Anne, from your side, when it comes to these kinds of issues, what should employers either be looking for or what kinds of services can they obtain uh, through a company like yours that might help in these kinds of situations, if any? Yeah, I think I think setting very clear policies and procedures um, that are very universal uh, in nature as far as addressing all staff at the same time. Um, you know, a lot of the issues that we're talking about on this podcast, um, you can you can name any sort of one. If somebody walks in with a T-shirt or somebody has um, some uh, illness symptoms, things like that, um, making sure that any sort of um, policy is, is applied to the whole group, right? Because what we're trying to avoid is any sort of discrimination claims that are coming out of these. Um, some of the trends that we're seeing from the employment practices liability side, um, post kind of COVID and COVID related specifically um, in terms of discrimination where like folks in the workforce were identifying those that were deemed more vulnerable um, as far as, you know, the COVID um, symptoms. So that could be older work work uh, workers or uh, maybe even uh, folks that were pregnant, things like that, and maybe putting them on leave first. And that would, you know, and then treating them very, very differently than they would the rest of the, the population, the rest of the staff, right? And so those are the things that you want to make sure that you're steering clear of, you know, and the, the pressure and the, um, the, the, you know, the pressure cooker situation that we're in as far as, you know, the, the financial heaviness of what's happening and trying to, you know, save our, our companies from not shuttering and things like that. I can completely understand, um, you know, wanting to avoid some of those situations um, where, you know, you're, you're identifying, you know, I have the highest risk over here. Let's let's take action. But I mean, that's kind of the, the last thing you want to do. You want to make sure that the policies are really universal um, internally. So that's probably my best best guidance based on what we've seen from claims. And since these are laws and, and those laws are changing, obviously, as we've talked about, um, should they also be policies then that you have written into your employee handbook, your policies and procedures manual? Or is it enough that it's out there and you just make people aware of it in the workplace? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would say, you know, making folks aware of the actual laws. I mean, what, what's challenging, though, is that they are changing so rapidly. So keeping up with that, you'd have to probably staff up a little bit to make sure someone's on top of it. But I, I, I always advocate for transparency first. So, you know, here's the changes to the laws. Here's what you need to know about it. Um, what I'm really digging into is more, you know, these anti-harassment, anti-discrimination policies that are really standard code of conduct at this point, but making sure that they're keeping up with the changes in the laws and legislations and very clear about, you know, what, what anti-harassment, anti-discrimination means relative to our current 
you know, 2020 issues, right? So like the political unrest um, could be addressed, addressed in these policies that, you know, COVID symptoms, things like that, I mean, could be written in as well. So making sure that that culturally is clear um, within those policies, I think is important. So you both mentioned um, in different ways, kind of the anti-discrimination and um, some of the accommodations and things. When it comes to ADA, and you know, there was, again, changes from when this first happened to where we are now, but masks, for example, uh, when we first had face covering mandates, people were told, well, you know, if you can't wear one because you have asthma or claustrophobia or something, then you just don't have to wear one. And then it was, well, you still have to make an accommodation, which means either, you know, getting your stuff at the curb or, um, you know, somehow accommodating them still, but they couldn't just come into your establishment without a mask. Um, so both from an employee and a customer standpoint, are there other accommodations that you can or, or need to make? And what if an employee, for example, refuses to wear a mask or a face shield, period? Yeah, so the ADA has different laws as it relates to consumers and as it re and employers. So those are two different things, public accommodation versus employment laws. Um, we now have statewide mandates and requirements. So I think that makes it a lot easier on the consumer front. You do have a right to turn away a customer that won't wear a mask when our governor says you have to do it as a matter of law. Um, on the employee side, it is a requirement just like it is for any other business now to have people wearing masks, um, particularly in public areas or areas where they're around other people. And this is one of those areas that's changing. Um, Anna and I were just talking before this call about the slew of OSHA requirements that are right now coming out. And that's a whole other topic in and of itself. But a lot of this is really being legislated and mandated in a way that takes some of the guesswork uh, away from employers. Right now on the ADA side, setting aside all the OSHA requirements, you can require employees to wear a mask, particularly somewhere like Oregon, where we have these legal mandates at this point. Um, if an employee cannot because of a disability, a qualifying disability, you mentioned asthma. Um, if there's some reason why they can't wear a mask, you do have to engage in that reasonable accommodation discussion that you would with any other job requirement. So same process. You engage in a conversation, you get a medical note, you find out what the employee needs, you brainstorm other options, and you figure out a way to accommodate. And if you can't accommodate it, then the employee can't come to work. But you really have to have that interactive process conversation to get to the bottom of whether or not there is something that you can do that allows them to do their job while also still fulfilling this requirement of keeping other people safe. It might be face shields, it might be a bandana, it might be a scarf hard to say what the solution is in any given circumstance, um, but you do have a right to require them to wear masks. And I know that the OHA and the governor have come out now and saying face shields are not adequate. You should really have the face covering. You know, in our industry in particular, um, working from home is not always an option. Um, as a server or someone who works at the front desk in a hotel, um, you can't do that from your couch. Um, so what about when working from home is not an option? I mean, you, you mentioned you have to try to find an accommodation, have that conversation, I guess. Does it come down to either yeah, you have to follow the rules or we've, we've tried to make accommodations and we can't, um, and so you, you can't work? What's, what are the options, I guess, at that point? 
Yeah, I mean, it really does basically come down to that. So the law requires outside of the COVID context and otherwise that you make a reasonable accommodation for disability that allows the employee to do their job. So if there is not, it's you know, two parts. If it's not reasonable, work from home as a server, <laughs> uh, that doesn't allow an employee to do their job, that, you know, either one of those two parts of the formula makes the whole thing fall apart. So um, you have to engage, like I said, in that interactive process to find out if there is a reasonable accommodation that the employer can do without, it's called an undue burden, but essentially just tremendous cost or, or disruption to the business. If there's a solution, you gotta find it. If there's not one, then you're outside of the ADA. Um, then the employee is no longer qualified to do their job. Yeah, you, you touched on this a little bit about, you know, if somebody has asthma and I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of the, the customer coming in and, um, you know, with with ADA considerations, there are certain questions, you know, that, that you can ask and not ask, obviously. Um, but are there any other accommodations that need to be made in that arena? Um, from a consumer coming in? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, to be honest, um, that that title of the ADA. My assumption would be, and without, you know, speaking too far out of turn, is that it, to the extent you can still, um, you know, service the consumer without being discriminatory, you should. So, I, you know, curbside service, keeping them outside of the restaurant. I actually don't know what those solutions are, um, but I imagine the CDC has got it pretty well covered. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm curious to get uh, your opinions, both of you, on a law that was passed in Illinois earlier this year, um, and it's one that we're considering here in Oregon uh, that would make it a Class C felony to assault an employee of an establishment when they're trying to enforce the face covering mandate. I think this was more of a problem early on when people were very resistant to it. I think people have become more accustomed and accepting of it, but um, have you, had you heard about that? Do you have any, any thoughts on that? I, I hadn't heard about that. Um, I'm not surprised. I think it's a good idea. <laughs> Got to protect employees who are doing their jobs to enforce the laws that our state or our governor or city, um, set out. So I, it's really, really difficult as an employer to ask your employee to put themselves in harm's way without any kind of protection. Yeah. And any thoughts? I mean, I hadn't heard of that specific law passing in Illinois either, but I agree. I mean, I think it's 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 probably something to consider to to add that extra protection for employees just to just to you know walk through the state mandates um, because it is a real scenario that's happening um, quite a bit, especially in the hospitality sector. Um, unfortunately, you know, wearing a mask has become uh, it's a mixed bag of, um, you know, safety precautions. And also it's, it's bleeding into that political statement and environment and stuff like that. So it's really a contentious situation. It's not just all about safety half the time, you know? So, um, that's where I think, um, you know, again, that pressure cooker situation, anything that can help the employees kind of like fall back on the law and, um, help protect them is important. So, yeah. Yeah, for us in particular in the hospitality industry, in a lot of cases, it's somebody's first job. Uh, they don't maybe have a lot of customer service experience. And so dealing with, you know, angry or belligerent customers uh, can be challenging for sure. Um, I guess if there's any silver lining to the masks that, uh, although they are bleeding into the political side, they're also on the positive side becoming a fashion statement, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Your outfits with uh, all kinds of stuff now in your mask. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And on, just from a practical standpoint, it, it, it wouldn't hurt to have a designated person on each shift whose job it is to enforce those rules that's not a rank and file employee. So you don't have your person that's 18 years old having their first job, busing tables, confronting a belligerent customer. You have the manager doing that. And that's the kind of thing that you might want to set forth in a policy or a posting that's in the kitchen or the break room that says, you know, this is our policy with regard to customers that need to be spoken to about masks. You have to report to the supervisor on duty rather than trying to handle it yourself. Provides protection for the restaurant and also for the employee that's trying to figure out how to do their job and also be in an incredibly uncomfortable situation. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about this, and we have already on, on this podcast, but the OSHA rules that you mentioned, the infectious disease standards, for example, requires a safety officer be designated. They can have other job duties, but obviously, if you have somebody clearly in charge of those kinds of responsibilities, it does take some of the burden off of the, the frontline employees who may be interacting directly with the, the customers. Yeah, what I would hate is to be in a situation where the company is disciplining a rank and file employee for not having enforced a mask rule when that employee is incredibly uncomfortable or feeling unsafe, because that's it. That's just a lose-lose situation for everybody involved. Um, whereas if you have people that are trained or it's part of their job expectation and they fail to live up to it, you know, they have to do their job in order for everybody else to do theirs. Well, as I mentioned, I, I think this is becoming less of a problem than it was, but um, Early on, there were some incidents of, of violence uh, against employees. And so um, whether it's coming from you know, customers or whether it's internally, I think we've used the phrase pressure cooker situation right now, um, is a lot of uh, people that are tense, um, that are feeling maybe trapped by the situation that we're in, either because they're staying at home or, or because they're maybe coming into work and, and they don't necessarily want to, but they need the money. Um, what resources are there for employers and employees when it comes to workplace violence prevention? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll tackle that one. We've, we've got um, actually uh, probably surprising to folks that are listening um, in the insurance industry. There are insurance products that address this pretty specifically. Um, there's an old product that's called workplace violence is kind of an add-on to your employment practices liability coverage, but there's actually an emerging policy that's called active shooter and workplace violence. So it's much more um, broad and it's unfortunately um, just rising, you know, coming about because of the claims and, and the activities that we're seeing in the workplace, just violent acts and, and things like that. And again, this was happening, um, you know, we all know the headlines, but this is happening prior to COVID, um, prior to the pandemic as well. We've had some mass shootings and things like that. So there are products out there that will really um, not only provide that insurance backstop, but that comes with a whole slew of resources um, to help prevent these violent attacks. And so, um, you know, outside of what you can kind of glean from, you know, OSHA and trainings and things like that, um, there are great third-party resources out there. Um, the Alice Institute is a real go-to there um, for that. Um, there's also a really cool um there's a company here in Portland actually called Complete Threat Preparedness here in Portland, not to plug them too hard, but there's really great um, third-party vendors that can come in and do live trainings, kind of walk through uh, your staff for an actual like active shooter event and put those things in place. But when I talk about workplace violence prevention, I always think about it in these kind of two different categories. And one is addressing these two exposures. One is the internal threat. So your actual employee is the perpetrator of the violent attack. Um, one of the, a lot of the different ways to um, 
really reduce that risk is to create a culture that is has a ton of awareness around um, harassment um, is, is one of the biggest things. Harassment and bullying in the workplace is a huge indicator of a, a, a violent attack that may may come afterwards, right? So it's it's that kind of cultural, um, are you going to look away? Are you going to have proper reporting involved? Um, you know, like you put those resources in play for those employees to actually address that um, in a safe and secure manner, right? Report that up the chain, have disciplinary actions, things like that. Um, so policies and procedures internally, externally is the other category, right? So the external, you know, you've got a patron coming in, you may not even have, it might not be a customer client, it could be a family member of an employee that has, you know, now you've got a domestic issue coming into the workplace, um, which is, uh, you know, pretty devastating. But having, um, you know, a, a full, thorough uh, security check of your actual premises, um, having extra security, um, you know, uh, cameras and things like that, monitoring ins and outs of, you know, secured access and things like that. Um, outside of work hours, making sure that you don't have a lot of assets that are sitting there, um, kind of, uh, you know, the big shiny thing for the robbers to come in and kind of, <laughs> you know, jump into the restaurant and, and grab cash, right? Use some electronic payment systems, keep the um, perimeter well lit, things like that. So we've got some really great checklists that we can provide to clients uh, for both of those two categories, internal and external. And then there's uh, external resources as well. I know it's that time of year for open enrollment. Um, EAP programs are probably more important now than ever for employees. Um, oftentimes you get six sessions, 10 sessions, free mental health counseling that's anonymous and it's not reported to the employer for any of this stuff. I mean, it could be because there's stress on the family because you're stuck home so much, or maybe it's, you know, generalized anxiety as related to COVID or protests, but there's people are struggling. People are having a really hard time. And to the extent that companies can offer EAP through a low cost, you know, bump and benefit premiums, it's really worth it. Um, it can really, really help employees and to make sure that they know it's available so that they have an outlet of some, you know, mental health counseling and professional help. Yeah, you, you uh, both list off some really great resources and um, we'll try to get those added into the notes of the podcast when we get it posted. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Haley, uh, you mentioned an EAP, but for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with that acronym, that stands for? Employee <laughs> Assistance Program. That's what it okay. is. Employee yeah. Assistance Program. It's Many acronyms. It's, yeah, it's mental health counseling. Um, yeah. And usually it's it's like you would see with another insurance panel. If you go to your EAP provider for your company, there'd be a list of however many mental health professionals that you can contact underneath the program. And it's paid for just like a medical benefit, but it's anonymous and it doesn't get reported to your employer. And you could take advantage of however many free sessions that your plan allows. I think it's usually a minimum of six um, to go get just outside mental health care for whatever reason. It can be as minimal as I am tired of staring at my walls and I need to talk to another human being um, or, you know, severe depression, suicidal thoughts, really the whole gamut. So it's, it's a really worthwhile program to have. I remember um, our... I, our HR at our firm has done a really, really good job of continuing to remind people every time something new happens, protests, mm -hmm. the election, whatever, COVID, you know, here's a reminder, here's the link to our EAP, please take advantage of the resource. That's great. Well, as we wrap things up, um, I wanted to ask about what are some um, risk mitigation resources that might be available to assist with 
navigating a company's employment practices exposures? Yeah, um, we kind of say in the industry, if you have employees, then you need employment practice liability insurance. I mean, even if it's just one um, at times. So um, yeah, so definitely on the insurance side, there's there's two pieces that I kind of wanted to throw out there. One, we just mentioned active shooter, um, active shooter and workplace violence. Uh, that product these days is now, um, it's just expanded to the point where it'll address threats, which is great. So if you have any sort of inkling of, you know, um, a bad actor that's making threats to um, an employee or internal and external threats, right? Um, the policy will kick out proceeds for additional security and um, potentially counseling and kind of help step in and mitigate, hopefully before that um, violent event happens. Um, the additional expansion to that policy is that it's going to be picking up business interruption costs. So if there is a violent event, kind of post-event, um, and the business needs to shut down. There is some economic damage um, kind of uh, payback that can be found um, in that policy, um, as well as legal liability. We actually had a um, situation where we did have a violent attack on one of our uh, insured's premises, and it was uh, an employee that came back on site and harmed five individuals, one of which was a, was a job applicant on site. So if you can imagine, and we all, I don't expect everyone to be familiar with all of the work comp laws and things like that, but work comp generally is focused on employees. And outside of that, when you have customers, patrons, other folks that are being harmed in your, your premises, you know, we want to make sure that we've got some sort of um, policy that can address those scenarios as well. And so the increased um, coverage on, on the active shooter also will pick up full medical costs. It'll pick up that legal liability piece. It's pretty expansive, so I would definitely recommend members looking into that. Uh, and then the bigger monster here is the employment practices liability policy. It's an, it's it's the gold standard of if you're going to be picking up, um, you know, an insurance portfolio that's pretty meaningful. EPL definitely needs to be in there. It's it's a product that sit, sits with the capabilities of picking up your defense costs and damages related to any sort of actual or alleged wrongful act, wrongful employment act. So that alleged piece is the stuff that can really bring you into the court and have you defend whatever the allegation may be. And so that's pretty costly. Um, also will lead you right down the, the line of settling and defense, you know, type of things. And with those products, we've now seen this really great trend of insurance products, not just being that backstop of, you know, something happened, we're just going to, you know, be a piggy bank and pay you back. They're really building out each, each of these carriers, a lot of great resources to help reduce the claims, obviously, and help um, reduce the risk on the insurance standpoint. So, you know, if you're partnering with uh, like a, a Chubb or a Travelers or CNA out there, right, they all have these big resources where it's an online platform. You can supplement a lot of your HR policies and procedures, a lot of really great templates, checklists, things like that. Another great feature is that you get kind of a free, um, um, you know, uh, depends on the, the policy contract, but a free consultation right with your uh, employment attorney. So if you've got some sort of questions and you just need a, a phone line, you got that within the policy. Um, it tends to be, you know, free of charge and complimentary to a lot of policyholders. So I like about insurance, you know, much more broadly and more of a risk management tool where you've got not just the contract that's going to help reimburse, but you've got this army of individuals and other third-party resources that are going to come into play as well. So those are kind of the two biggies as far as the, you know, the insurance piece. Uh Haley, anything that you wanted to add to what Ann was just talking about? Or I would say risk mitigation to the extent that you do have um, 
in-house HR professionals, making sure that they are really well aware of everything that's happening in the workplace. The best situation is that the HR has a 10,000 foot view of everything that's happening so that they can see if there's hot spots and trends happening within the work environment, even if one situation isn't potent enough to require a response. You, you learn a lot by understanding just sort of the playing field and where things are creeping up. Um, so really engaging an HR professional as much as you can in the decision-making in the business um, to the extent that you are not a big enough company to have your own HR professional, there are great HR resources too. I know money can be tight for a lot of people, a lot of businesses right now, but to the extent that there is the resource for something like a Zenium or one of these outside HR groups that can just be on call and help you when things come up. Um, I hate to take away my own job, but it's less expensive than a lawyer and can provide you a lot of that help on a, a quick turnaround basis. I don't think job security is going to be a problem for you, Haley. Don't worry about that. <laughs> well, as we do wrap this up, do you have any last um, pieces of advice or thoughts for the folks that are listening out there? Something that maybe we haven't covered that you'd like them to know? And Haley, we'll go ahead and start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think all the time, but especially right now, the best thing employers can do is be empathetic. Um, treat employees like human beings, understand that everybody's going through a lot, engage in discussion, be open. There are a lot of legal problems that can be resolved through communication between two people that are willing to listen. And I think sometimes that step gets missed, not intentionally, but it's because we've just talked about 15 different laws and it's a web and people are figuring out what do I have to do? What do I need to do? What, you know, what should I do? But just going back to saying, okay, you know, I understand you want to, don't want to come to work. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And how can we resolve this for you so that we're not fighting about whether or not I owe you leave, but instead can come to a solution that's going to make the employee feel valued and also serve the business. Um, the last thing I would say is that people usually sue when they're pissed. So if you can keep them from being pissed off, they're probably not going to sue, even if you didn't do something exactly right, you know, try to do it right. Um, but everybody just wants to feel like they're being taken care of and that their needs are heard. And if we can start there, you know, so much of what lands on my desk would not be there um, because so much of it is just misunderstanding or, or anger or resentment that could have been avoided. Well, that's great. Well, if, if your job is in jeopardy, it sounds like you have a future career as a counselor <laughs> or, or some sort of adjudicator working with folks to, to mitigate those problems before they get to the desk there. If you could let my kids know that, that would be great. They think I'm full <laughs> of nonsense, but. <laughs> and any, uh, any last thoughts or. or yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing, but I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this word inward just because I know that a lot of folks, even on a personal level with, when the pandemic broke out, they really went inward. I mean, we're stuck in our homes, people started baking bread and everyone was starting to, you know, homestead a little bit and kind of like really dig into their family life and things like that. And I, I feel like that can translate pretty well into the workplace. I think if leadership really focused on workplace culture and really started to um, kind of create that culture advocacy and encouraging employees to accept, you know, differences, accept, you know, challenges that may be, you know, very individual to each person and how you foster that is important, you know, and just, just opening those lines of communication, allowing employees to get to know each other um, and things like that. And I think that really helps to kind of diffuse situations that, you know, can tend to blow up just based on the not knowing and, and you know, the reactive nature of, you know, us being humans, right? So I think that's one of the biggest things of just 
creating that good culture and and forming that team uh, approach around, you know, how are we going to tackle this challenging environment together, right? So there's my warm and fuzzy for, for everybody. Yeah. I think that's great. Well, thank you both. We're going to take another quick break and we'll come back with Advocacy Watch. Are you in need of quality alcohol server training and certification? Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association pioneered online server training in Oregon. Approved by the OLCC, Orla's online alcohol server training allows you to get training when you need it, available 24-7. Training and exam costs only $18 and is valid statewide for five years. Get started today at OregonAlcoholServer.com. Welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch. This is where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of. We're going to kick it off with uh, Oregon OSHA and three uh, issues that they have out there right now. Our president and CEO, Jason Brandt, sent an email uh, uh, recently around these three, uh, one having to do with the infectious disease standard, another having to do with the increase in fines to employers, and the third having to do with redefining the employer responsibility. And you can get more information by making sure that you're signed up to receive those emails from Jason or uh, contacting us at OregonRLA.org. Yeah, and, and they can also find that information on our uh, website as well. So, A couple of different ways for folks to reach out to us, including our upcoming Government Affairs Committee meeting. Uh, we are going to be covering our legislative agenda for the 2021 session, which, among other things, will include to-go cocktails, protecting the lodging tax disbursement, and privacy issues here in the state of Oregon. We'll also be approving a PAC budget, our political action committee budget, and getting input on position papers or white papers uh, for Orla on a variety of topics. So, Greg, if uh, some of our members want to attend that meeting, what do they need to do? Well, one of the silver linings in all of this is that we're able to do uh, Zoom calls now with folks from around the state. So November 12th at 1030 a.m. is when the next uh, Government Affairs Committee meeting will be. And if you're interested in attending that remotely, you can contact Glenda Hamstreet here at Orla and let her know at ghamstreet at OregonRLA.org. Just let her know you'd like to RSVP for the Government Affairs Committee and she'll send you the information. Great. The last thing we wanna to bring to people's attention is the efforts by Orla recently on convincing the governor's office to remove the 10 p.m. curfew uh, for bars and restaurants and the 100 person cap uh, for indoor dining or um, gatherings. We recently sent out a phone to action alert and asked people to send letters, uh, emails to the governor asking for removal of both of those items. If you're not signed up for those phone to action alerts, you need to be. Um, these are alerts that we use when we have a crisis like this come up and we need to get your input and your help in contacting elected officials. And Lori, if somebody wants to sign up, what do they need to do? Yeah, it's actually pretty simple. If you have a smartphone, you just text ORLA, O-R-L-A, to 52886, and it's a simple little sign up there. So, We promise not to inundate you. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we're judicious in our use of these phone to action alerts, but 
it seems like more and more there are critical issues that we're dealing with in the hospitality industry, and we, we do need your help in contacting our elected officials. So please sign up today. Yeah, and Greg, we really have seen um, quite a response, particularly on these last two issues of uh, industry members that have stepped up and you know shared their stories and, and concerns with uh, elected leaders. It's just so important to do that. And we appreciate every one of you that do. So thank you very much. Well, I'd like to say thank you again to Ann Hassenstab of Ward Insurance, Haley Morrison of Tonkin Torp LLP, Lori Little, Orla Director of Communications, and you for joining me today. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening.